I'm Lauren. And I'm Eric. Over the past year, we've connected dozens of classic She-Ra episodes to modern progressive issues. But we're not done yet. In this second season of our show, I'm no longer a newbie to Etheria. This year, we're taking a higher level view of the characters and issues that face the Princess of Power. We're as interested as ever in how those issues connect to our current political landscape. So join us as we look back to the 80s and forward to the Netflix reboot of one of our favorite cartoons. This, this is, is She-Ra, She-Ra Progressive, Progressive of Power. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the last classic format episode of She-Ra Progressive of Power. I'm Eric. I'm Lauren, and I'm not sure you want to say that, considering this one's going to air before the other one. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'll just lean into it. I, <laughs> we literally made a point of talking about this. Yeah, my computer died this morning, uh, and so I have what was going to be tomorrow's episode on it. But now it's going to be next week's episode because I have to get the data recovered. So you'll hear this first. Right. And so I feel like it's fine to be honest about that. Yeah, because I miss my computer. Actually, this one's way better, though. Yeah, but this is your computer now. Like, you'll hear us talk about next week. We're only recording two more of, like, the traditional, we're going to watch some episodes and then talk about them. And then we have a couple season finale-y things lined up. And then uh, we have a Netflix show coming out soon. I feel like it's going to be soon. There's other Netflix news, like the new season of Arrested Development sort of floating out there in the ether, which to me says there's a big wave of Netflix goodness, like right around the corner. And I think she is going to be a part of it. Yeah. And well, I think about like that Voltron show that dropped in the summer. Right. And that was like probably the closest analog to she So I bet it's pretty soon. But even if it's not. There's only the year's like a third gone already. Oh man. <laughs> Before we started recording, I was talking about how busy I am with uh grad school applications and my friends over at the Illinois Science Council and I just I think I've been in like a a blackout state almost. I haven't even looked up to realize that it's May. It's May as the memes say. <laughs> it was going to be was, May. Yeah, it was going to be and now it is. <laughs> That's going to be funny to me till I die. I know some people are really burning out on it, but you can show me Justin Timberlake on April 30th for the rest of time, and I will be pleased. Well, that would require that April 30th was the rest of time. You know, if I were to be stuck in a day forever, like, April 30th wouldn't be a bad choice. Not this April 30th. It was pretty nice. Oh, God, we're not going to talk about the weather again. Let's talk about She-Ra. I I mean, that that was almost a weather talk, but it was almost a time travel talk also. So it could be, it was like simultaneously mundane and very exciting. That's true. And they talk about the weather in Groundhog Day pointedly. So if we were doing Groundhog Day, I guess that would be okay. So what we're doing over the next two weeks, and you'll hear us explain this again, is we we don't have guests. That's why we rambled a little longer today, because Lauren and I have topics that are kind of near and dear to us that brought us into podcasting and fandom stuff in the first place. And next week, you'll hear Lauren's specialty, which is cosplay and costuming. And today we're talking about my thing that I never get to talk about on podcasts except the other two podcasts I do, which is music. I was going to say, being your friend, I hear you talk about music a lot, but I guess that's not necessarily true for our listeners. That's true. I don't ever talk about it on this show, and it kills me inside. I made a kiss joke once, and you and the other guests were like, you were dead to it, and it hurt my soul. Oh, I I was not even aware that that ever happened. That went over my head for sure. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's okay. Well, today is your day then, because today we're going to talk about music and its importance and its influence on society and, you know, your favorite character, Bo. Today is my day, and today is Bo's day, because we have to talk about Bo in an episode about music. Uh, But yeah, here, so let me tell you the story, and next week you'll get Lauren's story about how she got here. I'm going to tell you about how music put me in this chair in a roundabout way. So I was in... A cover band some eight years ago with some friends in the south suburbs. What kind of covers? Uh, we were called Jukebox Cover Band. Like, that or the style was Jukebox because we just played anything. So, like, we would go from, like, Seal's Kiss from a Rose to, like, Van Halen to Iron Maiden, like, to Britney Spears or something. I don't think we actually played Britney Spears. But, like, you know, that kind of, like, we just hit anything that was ever popular. 
And uh, my friend Kevin Reeder, Nerdalog's guru, was like, hey, I'm, uh, I got this storytelling show that we run up in Chicago. We'd love to have a band there. Do you want to come play at it? And the guys in my band were kind of like, uh, we need to get paid for gigs, so we don't want to. But me and Dwight Hassler, who was the singer and I was the bass player, were like, yeah, we like Kevin. Let's go do the show. You defected. Yeah, so we didn't get paid, but we did defect. And I ended up playing guitar and Dwight sang. And uh, that show was the Nerdalogs Present Your Stories. And that was the summer of 2011. And in November 2011, reeling from a breakup, I was like, I want to make something. I'm going to start recording this and turning this into a podcast. And so I did. And now that show's been going on for seven years, all because Kevin knew I was in a band and asked me to play some music at a show that he hosted. And uh, I saw that show for the first time when my husband was in it. Uh, but I finally got the pleasure of being in your stories just at C2E2. Yes, it was a great show. Lauren did great. Tim Seeley was there. Uh, it actually got a little press, which was cool. Um, my friend Chris Crotwell told a great story. Uh, that I mean, everyone was great. It was such a good time. You can find that on nerdalogs.com with a bunch of other wonderful shows. But yeah, music is what, what put me into podcasting. So. so my fandom story, which you'll hear next week, started all the way back in high school. And so when you started talking, I was imagining like much earlier than 2011. And then you mentioned Kevin and I was like... Is Kevin an infant in this story? What's going on well, right now? That's that's the direct podcast connection, but I'm glad you said that because I've always been drawn to music. This is true. I won um, the most musical award at my junior high graduation. Wow. Yeah, and I was the kid who, when I would play with my Transformers or He-Man or like Darkwing Duck toys, I would like hum the music from the show because it was just so ingrained in me and I'm so even to this day so keyed into what background music is playing when I watch something and so I think um, He-Man and She-Ra present an especially interesting opportunity to talk about that especially given uh, the man who's credited with composing the music for this show do you know anything about him? Sure don't, but oh. I bet I'm about to learn. Oh, you are about to learn. Let's talk about it. It's been a long time since I just got like a chunk of She-Ra history dropped on me i've i've uh been more in the know recently so i'm excited well this is not related to the show as much as politics actually so this huh. yeah get ready um so the music in he-man and she-ra is credited to haim saban and shuki levy and that's interesting because haim saban is probably the most famous name associated with he-man and she-ra outside of like, like the most famous real person name let's say um <laughs> Haim Saban is, I think, the 280th richest person in America. He was the largest Hillary Clinton donor in 2016. He owns Telemundo. He, he's an uh, ex-Israeli, I think, army guy who came to the U.S. decades ago and made a shit ton of money in music publishing. Because him and Shuki were in a band, they realized that it was much more lucrative to make money through publishing than uh, rock and roll. And the easiest way to make a buck in publishing was kids' cartoons because all you had to do was write like seven or eight pieces of music and then they would repeat all the goddamn time. And then you would get paid for all of those repetitions. And so they started on shows like He-Man and She-Ra, built up a minor fortune. Now, you might also know the name Haim Saban because guess what? Do you know what show he brought to America? Power Rangers. Power Rangers. So he just got a $500 million payday this week because he sold Power Rangers to Hasbro. This week? Yeah, this week. Wow. So this guy's still in the news. Yeah, he was, um, they wrote about him a lot in the 2016 campaign because of his contributions to Hillary. He's kind of a one-issue donor. Uh, his issue is Israel. And so he actually did not like Barack Obama. He felt that Obama slighted him because Obama was not as pro-Israel as he had hoped. Well, that outlook must be changing, thanks to <laughs> Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't know where Saban, I mean, obviously Saban is anti-Trump, but he is so pro-Clinton that, I mean, the la latest I could find is a year ago, but in 2017, he was saying that he thinks Hillary would run again in 2020. So he's a very involved figure. He's also kind of a philanthropist, but he's also like, 
so rich that <laughs> it makes me mad. Yeah, given the conversation we had recently on this show about wealthy people and whether or not they deserve the material prosperity that they have, I'm not going to go into the rant that I want to go into in that regard. But all that said, there's another hitch in the Haim Saban Shuki Levy story that I was just reading about, which is that, so as I said, they made all their money in music publishing. It turns out that crediting them is a bit misleading because the credits all belong to basically an LLC called like Haim Saban and Shuki Levy. There's a lot of questions in the air as to what they've actually written um, because they employ lots and like probably dozens of composers who need money and they ghostwrite these things and then sign away their rights because they need a paycheck. So especially Saban probably does none of the actual writing, but unfortunately the only names we can credit are Haim, Shuki, and a person named Erica Lane, who is Erica Scheimer, Lou Scheimer's daughter, who again adopted a fake name to skirt laws about uh, payments and things like that. Hey. Yeah. But you don't hear her music except in the Secret of the Sword movie. She's, oh, and she wrote that. Um, do you remember Bo's Christmas song? Yes. From, yeah, she wrote that. Love and caring, <laughs> peaceful bliss. Thank goodness that was put into the world. Yeah. I, I do want to, I guess, in defense of evil corporate tactics, say that uh, the ghostwriting underpaid composer thing is not just a Saban thing. It is an industry thing. Uh, I have a, a friend who... Uh, I I did improv with in college, and he went on to become an Oscar-winning composer. Uh, But for a long time, he was getting a bigger fish's name slapped onto his work. Yeah, we should have had him on the show. I think it's just notable with Saban because of how rich he is. Like, there's not probably a lot of billionaire mogul, like, political donor. I don't know. I could be wrong. But he's also just very celebrated, and so I thought that was worth calling out, that like he probably didn't write this music, but I think we have to talk about it as though he did because we don't know actual Because who names. else could it be? <laughs> it's just a bunch of question marks, I guess. Right. So we watched a couple episodes that, well, we like I said, we had to watch one with Bo as the show's resident musician, which weirdly had something to do with music, kind of. It did. I think we want to do Horde Prime first, though, don't yeah. we? <laughs> Horde Prime takes a holiday. Uh, I was excited to watch only because Eric seemed to have a lot of excitement telling me that it was time to watch it. So I went in with high expectations and they were met because heavens, what a funny and good episode. In this episode, uh, predictably, Horde Prime is going on a two-week tropical vacation, and uh, the scene opens with him leaving his flagship uh, sort of just war machine, the Velvet Glove, uh, into the care of Hordak. Shamona. <laughs> I got that reference. Thank God. Uh, and so there's a, a little bit of exhibition, which is a throwback to... Uh, the <laughs> Horde Prime's birthday, where we found out he has two of everything. He apparently used to have two warships, and Hordak, in a sort of hand-wavy previous incident, destroyed that one. And so I don't know why we're trusting him again, but we are. So Horde Prime goes off to Hordewaii, or wherever they go for their tropical vacation. That's good. Ah, I thought so. And then uh, Hordak just immediately says, all right, everyone, we're going to take over Eternia and Etheria with this ship. Uh, the Horde generals, they're actually kind of not not on board for this, but Hordak says, forget it, domination, let's do it. So he aims a freeze cannon at uh, Whispering Woods, and if the beam touches Etheria, everything's going to be frozen. Thankfully, it is blocked by She-Ra and our visiting friend, He-Man. They uh, have to kind of stand there, preventing this ice beam from hitting Etheria. And just as you think all hope is lost, the beam stops because Skeletor also wants possession of the Velvet Glove. And he is fighting Hordak up on the ship. So... uh, Shira kind of says, we have to get up there and stop them because if one of them wins, they're going to take over everything. So Shira heads up to space, 
with just a, an eternally long grappling hook thrown by He-Man. It's a very strange tool that he was keeping in his pants. <laughs> his they, barely pants. His, yeah, I don't know where in his tiny loincloth he was keeping an infinitely long rope, but the magic of cartoons it is. We lasso the ship and hold it in place so it can't escape. And I, I mean, it's just sort of slapsticky, right? Like Hordak and Skeletor are fighting and end up damaging the ship very badly. Uh, because they're their own worst enemies. And together, through He-Man's brute strength and She-Ra's uh, smarts, they crash the big ship into an asteroid, and now uh, Horde Prime's second flagship is destroyed. So She-Ra ends up having to rescue Hordak off of the ship, because it's uh, in. It's going down, it's in disrepair, and... Hordak's knocked out, so we once again get to see She-Ra kind of draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to let my mortal enemy die. And he uh, gets returned to Horde Prime, so the punishment from Horde Prime is theoretically going to be worse than anything She-Ra could ever do to him. Uh, and this is also the episode with the the very special moral at the end, but we'll get into that later. Yeah, and I think like the reason I push for doing this in this episode I mean, there's a lot of cool things about this episode I think we can talk about, but the music is present because we can talk about kind of something Lauren mentioned the, in the very first episode, the difference between the scoring of He-Man and She-Ra. And, and having both He-Man and Skeletor guest star in this episode lets us kind of see uh, the tracks from He-Man interplaying with its sister show, even though all of the music intermingles anyway like there were tracks that were written around the time of she-ra that don't show up in he-man but all the he-man music is in play um you never really hear the theme unless the brother is there and i thought that it was cool to get that in here yeah i noted that their music was more similar than i expected it to be when i started listening i was really thinking i was going to hear some dissonance but they're both very uh, epic sort of horn section fan fairy. They have a lot in common. I think in, in kind of composing themes for a set of twins, it was pretty smartly done. Yeah, there is a little bit of gender coding um, as far as like the He-Man has like the jungly toms and the very bassy like He-Man. Yes, that's true. Um, whereas the She-Ra music is a little more, pardon the pun, ethereal and synthy. Uh, and even like glammy, like Gem was in the 80s too, or like uh, Churches is now. Uh, but there still are an awful lot of similarities in the scoring between the shows. And I, I like that. I think it's one of the ways that we see a consistent world between them. One of my uh, favorite themes in this episode that does draw a stark difference between He Man's show and She Ra's show is the motivation difference between Hordak and Skeletor. Hordak is very clear that he's going to take over Etheria, and then when he's done, he's going into Eternia. Skeletor is very clear that the rebellion is irrelevant to him. He doesn't want to help Hordak with the rebellion because it's not his problem. And if he got control of the Velvet Glove, I think he would just skip Etheria entirely, go back to Eternia and sort of try to take over his his kind of home, his home base there, his his world. And I guess that's, I mean, that was terribly interesting to me because if either one of these super-powered villains can jump so easily between planets, why wouldn't they just conquer both? And I love what that says about Skeletor. Skeletor is a very sort of happy dictator to just uh, have the one kingdom that he's interested in as opposed to the known universe, which is what I think Horde Prime is after. Yeah, even I'm thinking back to the couple episodes we've watched where Skeletor tries to kill Hordak and always his goal is to like then invade Eternia with his new army. Like he really doesn't care about Etheria at all. He's he's very charming in a misguided evil way. Yeah, it really has inspired me to, if and when we take a break from this show, just for fun, I'm going to watch some He-Man because I've really fallen for Skeletor in a big way. Oh, I'll give you some good episode recommendations. Uh, if we're talking about actual themes, the moment in this episode I love is 
when uh, there's a moment where it shifts to being completely He-Man versus Skeletor, which is Skeletor is uh, getting away with the velvet glove and He-Man's got the end of the grappling rope and the ship is like making He-Man sail through the air and then he finds a mountain to foothold onto and the minute that like the second his boots hit the mountain like a variation of the he-man theme kicks on and all of a sudden it's just like you're watching like the brother show as he like heroically tries to hold on to the ship it's very cool very well timed bit of uh scoring i have to stop the ship before it drags me into space that mountain that might just do it. What? What happened? The ship, it stopped. What? Who could have... If E-Man thinks that even his strength is a match for this ship, he'll soon discover his mistake. I'll just increase the power. Speaking of scoring, or just, I guess, sound design in those moments in general, you are absolutely right that on this show, the same handful of songs comes back over and over and over again. But because I was listening closely... I noticed the diversity of the actual sound design and how there are some very earthy, you know, crunching, crumbling sort of ground noises, but also a lot more fantasy, uh, science fiction, laser sounds and shimmery sounds and sort of otherworldly clanging. And I, I just want to tie that back to what you said about He-Man's theme versus She-Ra's theme. She's got this more synthy, poppy thing going on. And it seems like even when the their worlds meet, even the sound effects, you know, the sound design as a whole represents the meeting of two characters. That's a great point. Uh, it's always interesting to me when you bring He-Man onto this show because his vocals tend to have some kind of uh, heavy reverb on them to indicate, I don't know, that like his vocal cords are also extra strong and muscly. And it doesn't, he sounds more distant as a result, which I think is bizarre, but uh, it works. You get over it quickly. Especially during the transformation, his I have the power echoes significantly it, more. It sounds like it's from like further away somehow, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I hadn't thought that maybe it was an intentional choice. There was a part of me that thought it's it sounded I, I'm, I'm saying canned in the literal sense. Like there's a, a tinniness to it, like he's yelling mm-hmm. into a can. And I thought maybe it was just older. It's just older audio. But to your point, it might have been uh, just a special effect they were going for. Well, I'm not sure. It could be both because in the same way that I've noticed like in these last couple of weeks, we've seen He-Man transform. Oh, yeah, He-Man's going to be in an episode next week, too. And the transformation sequence seems scratchier. It's like they've used this audio and this video hundreds of times. It probably has degraded a little bit because it's not like they have a digital file. They're literally, like, refilming it every time. Yeah, down to the literal, uh, like, brightness of the moment, She-Ra's transformation looks brighter as if <laughs> as if, as if she's were, in a brighter room than He-Man is when they're standing next to each other. As if it was made two years later and is fresher at this point in time. <laughs> Almost as if. By the power of Grayskull. Something kind of tropey that came up in this episode, and I'm not sure that it's relevant, but we see this application of incremental power twice in quick succession. So first it's the freeze ray, add more power, add more power, add more power, and then it's the thrusters on the ship. 
add more power, add more power, add more power. And I was trying to watch this through my, you know, eight-year-old viewer eyes. And I remember thinking, on one hand, that makes She-Ra and He-Man look so strong. Like, look at the depths of what they're willing and able to sustain. Like, what powerful characters. But then I was thinking back to when we watched The Toys That Made Us and how so much of He-Man especially was a commentary on young boys at home in particular not feeling powerful, (laughs) that it's almost just a cheesy overuse of the idea of just raw physical strength. Like, "Look look how muscular, look how strong, just over and over. And so I could see uh Kind of two ways of looking at that, I guess. I noted that, too. It's almost like proto-Dragon Ball Z. Like, your power level is so high. They also probably spend, yeah, three minutes of this episode, I would guess, increasing power levels. Yeah, I'm going to say, like, this isn't my favorite episode. It is a fan favorite. But there's things like that that notch it down a bit for me. But I really did want you to see it for a couple of reasons. And I think... Yeah, like, if you can view it through the eyes of a kid, like, this is any kid's favorite episode. It's one of the only times both He-Man and Skeletor jump over into She-Ra, for instance. I will say something that did notch it down for me as an adult was some sort of gratuitous animation. Uh, when, with when, She-Ra's... Yeah, when She-Ra's uh-huh. re-entering the atmosphere and her, just literally, her butt is glowing with heat... It's the way that that's drawn. It is so unnecessarily sensual. Like, why are we sexualizing that moment? Heavens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't even notice that as a child, like as a younger person. But today I definitely did. Of course, the other kind of thing that really stands out about this episode that has nothing to do with music is the moral, which is this is the only time Lucky doesn't deliver the moral. It's He-Man, She-Ra, and Orko. Yeah, I remember being really struck by the fact that Orko was a part of this because if, if the whole point of what we're trying to say accurately is this is a gravely serious topic that... So much so that Loki can't handle it. We just completely discredit that with Orko, but all right. And yet I, I thought that their verbiage wasn't the worst. Like, it could have been more disastrous. So basically the moral is He-Man and She-Ra are telling you what to do if you are sexually harassed, assaulted, abused in some way. And it's pretty heavy. Yeah, they refer to it in a sort of gentle way. They use a lot of that very 80s and 90s language, you know, if someone touches you that way. And I'm not sure as a kid I I would know what that way meant uh, as, you know, someone watching this who thankfully didn't experience that sort of tragedy. What I did appreciate about it, though, was that they listed a long uh, amount of who might be trusted with this information. Yeah, I'm glad it wasn't just parents because that's kind of the go-to. But, like, I don't know the exact stats, but I'm, parents are guilty of this, like, more often than others, I think. Right. You know, sexual assault can happen within families, within your own home, with people who you are close to and generally trust. And so I, I did, you know, feel thankful that they were able to say or a teacher, or a religious leader. There are a bunch of people in your community who hopefully you can turn to in a time of need. Which is nice. That's nicely inclusive, and it lets you know that if someone at home is the problem, you have other ports in the storm. That's true. I I think my jaded adult self, unfortunately, feels this falls short in, like, what if you're not believed? Uh, Because one of the other sad things I I know about these situations is that kids aren't necessarily considered credible or trustworthy when it comes to narrating these parts of their lives. And I just hope that if this moral or this topic were to come around in a children's show today, that they would say, and if someone doesn't believe you, you know, your your truth is valid. Keep trying. Keep keep seeking out that help. Because you deserve to be heard and believed. I wish I had the um, the passage from the Lou Scheimer autobiography about this moral. But, uh, and I, I mean, obviously, this is just one story. So take it for what it's worth. But uh, apparently, a mother called 
Filmation sometime after this episode aired to say that um, her daughter, after seeing this moral, came and told her that somebody at her school was touching her inappropriately. Wow. Which is like, I mean, it, you know, even if that was the only case, like, at least it helped one person. Right. Somebody had, at least we, we hope so, their life changed for the better. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. I mean, there would be more tactful ways to handle it now, but I'm going to give this an attaboy for trying, especially because according to our Bible, the original moral for, the, for this episode featured Lucky explaining that you should ask for permission before taking something like a bike or toy that does not belong to you. Putting those next to each other unnerves me. Oh, gross. Shira and I want to talk to you about something that's very personal, your body. Remember, it's your body and no one should touch you in a way that you feel is wrong. I'll get anybody who tries it. It's not that easy, Orko. It's hard for a young person to admit that he or she has been touched in a bad way. If you've been touched that way, don't be ashamed. Tell someone you trust, like your parents, your doctor, your teacher, or counselor, or your minister or rabbi. Right, Orko? Right on! Next episode? (laughs) Next episode. I don't know if you've noticed, but... Especially with the shows we watched in the second season, Bo has been a real tool. Just, yes. Just like a real, like, mansplainy, arrogant SOB. Yeah, I was trying to figure out through this season of our show if maybe it was just a symptom of the writers trying to find their footing with what Bo was about, because they were clearly experimenting with a bunch of different potential sort of Achilles heels or personality flaws with this dude. But as a result, he just ends up with all of them. Yeah, and and it's across so many writers and so many plots, it just seems like everyone's hold into Bo has something to do with the fact that he doesn't listen to people and he thinks he's hot shit. Right, well, and that is a type of person that exists and, you know, a type of person worth exploring. But... I wish it were just clearer. So to keep it to the topic of this episode, I still don't know if Bo is a competent musician or not. I think I come out of this one saying, like, yes, but a terrible singer. (laughs) Uh, uh, Why don't you do the summary and we could explore that further? Yeah, so we watched the episode Bo's Farewell because we couldn't watch Play It Again, Bo, again, even though I suggested it because that episode's (laughs) great. So the episode starts with Bo giving the Twiggit Spunky a music lesson and then a magic lesson and then a physics lesson. And then Adora's like, hey, Bo, I thought we told you not to go wander because you're wanted. And he's like, no, it's fine. No one knows who I am. And they're like, yeah, you fought off the horde of the Battle of Bright Moon. You're a fugitive. And sure enough, the horde troopers and Catra come along, try to arrest Bo. She-Ra gets involved, so sends them scurrying. Uh, but then they decide to mess with the Twiggets for, like, basically housing this rebel. Uh, so Bo takes the Twiggets to Whispering Woods. And then uh, She-Ra ge- or Adora gives him a straight-up lecture about, like, you can't just do whatever you want. You have to listen to me. Like, you don't understand what you're walking into. And they decide that Bo needs to take a little vacation. So... On the way to his couple weeks, like, getting in touch with nature or whatever, uh, he walks back through the Twiggett village and finds out that Catra has enslaved the remaining Twiggets and are, is making them build a, uh, an eclipse gun that will destroy Bright Moon's defenses. You may remember this is also how Bright Moon's defenses get brought down in the Crystal Castle is through an eclipse. So, you know... That's fine. But Bo wanders into it, and with a little bit of help from She-Ra, but mostly just the fact that the Twiggets are, like, ready to rise up and fight for themselves, Bo uses the physics lesson he taught uh, Spunky about finding frequency, like, vibrational frequencies to disrupt physical objects to break the Horde's eclipse gun and save Bright Moon. And then I don't think he learns anything at the end. No, he kind of comes out thinking, I'm very useful, just like I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this episode's a little bit all over the place. 
It's true. I kind of just want to go chronologically and jump back to the beginning. This show's trying, I think, really hard, and we've seen this in the past, too, to occasionally be educational. Because Bo does say some correct-ish things about frequency. Uh, Unfortunately, they're applied later in a completely fantastical way. And so I don't know if the educational components of this show actually work. Yeah, they how they do it is they amplify his um, acoustic harp thing through another horde machine and find the frequency to disrupt the second horde machine. But that, yeah, that doesn't actually work. Well, and he's only playing open notes on his lute or whatever. Uh And so I imagine kids at home thinking, if I strum one note on my guitar, I'm going to blow up my house. That said, I did write in my notes, this episode, Bo goes to 11. I did I did have a nice guy written in big quotes because of the sort of mansplainy, yes, turning it up to 11. Yeah. Uh, and Adora has him pegged on that twice in this episode. She tells him, like, and we see her act as rebel leader, which I think is cool. We don't see enough of Adora laying down the law. And she's like, hey, dude, this is not okay. Like, I told you to stay put. And he just doesn't get it. Well, and sh- she super has a point because it makes Bo appear really inconsistent in his attitude because in some episodes we see him projecting himself as the greatest most popular musician and rebel and just general strongest best guy so for him to sort of go back on that and say no one knows who I am it's such bs and Adora's there to call him on it this feels like this should have aired really quickly after the pilot and then you could almost have like an arc where like because Catra recognized Bo he's like oh everyone knows me I'm the greatest <laughs> yeah when it, once again the order of the episodes might have been better served another way Adora what are you doing here I think the question is what are you doing here I'm giving a music lesson don't you realize that horde patrols are everywhere if they find you with the twiggets <laughs> they'd never recognize me be so sure. After the way you fought at Bright Moon, you may be better known than you think. All right, Spunky, I guess the lesson is over. I wanted to ask you, as our sort of resident musician, we see Bo kind of being being a teacher, being an educator for the Twiggets, and we don't see, you know, Twiggets school or Twiggets society in, in many other ways, and so... This could very well be the only education that they get. We don't know. And uh, I wanted to sort of ask you about music and arts education in the United States. Clearly, if Bo could teach these Twiggets anything, he's teaching them the arts. Uh, And just uh, how did arts education affect you and how do you think uh, it's going for America today? Well, you know... The, I, I always had, like I said, an amorphous love of music, but the thing that really unlocked it for me was starting in sixth grade, I got to play the cello in our school orchestra. And that was just so transformative because like, I had had keyboard lessons before, but for whatever reason, I'm just not proficient on keys. But when I got that stringed instrument, I was like, oh, baby, I can create. Like, I can make beautiful sounds. And that, <laughs> Oh, baby, I can create is my favorite <laughs> area quote ever. <laughs> it's true. And that just stayed with me and kind of solidified when I uh, saw Eric Clapton in concert. My dad took me and I was like, oh, my God, I want to play guitar, which is so funny because like in seventh grade, most kids are not influenced by Eric Clapton. But that really did it for me. Um, I was in seventh grade in 1997 is worth noting. So it was like school showing me that I could play and then kind of pop culture doing the rest, but I would always try to like find ways to sneak pop culture stuff or what I thought was like pop culture stuff into school orchestra. Like I had this Elton John album that was live with a symphony orchestra and I would try to convince our orchestra teacher it was chill to play those songs. (laughs) She wasn't into it. So that is the role music education played for me. And then I moved to uh, change areas for high school and my high school had a nationally recognized marching band and no orchestra. And so I had to give up the cello, but I did still have my guitar. They don't let you just drag a cello across the football field? No, stupid Marion. Um, But I was able to keep playing guitar. I'm totally self-taught. But after, you know, 21 years of it, I can play rhythm guitar pretty decently. Uh, 
as far as how do I think things are going in America today, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm the most read on this subject, but I think it's pretty clear that it's poor. Like, arts is always the first thing to get cut. And I understand that STEM is super important and career training is important, but I don't know. Like, I'm a kid who went to liberal arts school. I, I think that is the most valuable experience I ever had. And it was not any one thing that I learned, but the environment in which I learned. And had art not been a part of it, I don't know. I probably would have ended up like those finance kids who drink all weekend and then work in nine to five and are filthy rich. Hashtag not all finance kids. <laughs> not all finance kids. Uh, so I will say, for one, I agree. Whether we're talking No Child Left Behind or STEM, it doesn't seem to matter which side of the aisle we're on. Uh, arts always seem to end up on the budgetary chopping block. Um, a couple years ago, I had the honor of seeing almost the entire cast of Sesame Street at Dragon Con, unfortunately, right after Sesame Street had been pulled from PBS. And they said some really sad things about how none of them love what happened, but if a paid service is at HBO, Mm -hmm. didn't pick up their program, then we wouldn't have it at all. And so as a nation, we sort of face this uncool compromise where for-profit companies or companies with some sort of barrier between the consumer and the product are taking over, and yet we have to swallow those pills anyway because the alternative is is losing arts for our kids entirely. Uh, thankfully, there is a philosophy out there that turns STEM into STEAM, yeah. which includes uh, the A for arts, And I hope that becomes a prevalent and accepted part of our society because I was a choir kid, I was a theater kid, and I'm not sure I ever would have overcome my just crippling stage fright if I wasn't given opportunity after opportunity to sing and act and make people laugh. (laughs) If that wasn't valued, I don't think who I, I would be who I am. Clearly that's true for you as well. That's why you're here talking on this topic. I might have mentioned this on a prior episode, but there was some uh, like report going around a few weeks ago that uh, a study showed that the most successful employees at Google were former English and theater majors, which really like to me makes perfect sense. And like in the last two companies I've worked at, one was run by two English majors and a creative writing major, and one was run by two philosophy majors and someone who actually studied business. Um, that is not surprising at all to me. Like, career training, God, now I'm going to go into the, my whole thing about how when you are only goal-oriented, you're setting yourself up for failure because trying to get from A to C without recognizing what B is means you're not really going to get C. And that's how I feel about career training. Like, don't get me wrong. I think two-year uh, vocational programs are great. I don't think you can replace a liberal arts education. Well, I think... The truth is, as it is in so many cases, somewhere in the middle, because, you know, just before we started recording, I was talking about the strife of applying for business school and how difficult it is to do that when you were like me and went to college for communications, theater and English literature and avoided math and economics and finance like the plague. And so now I hardly have anything that, quote unquote, makes me qualified for the business world. <laughs> and so I think uh, just a healthy diet, you know, of, of all the types of education you can get, including arts and including STEM, would benefit everyone. Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying don't take business classes. I'm just saying you can get all that at a liberal arts university while still, like, feeding your soul. Sure, sure. I mean, back to your first point, my husband is killing it in law school right now because he was a theater major And even me, there are days at my day job where I'm treated like a magical unicorn because I can get up in front of a crowd. And, you know, I think I said this on a previous episode, more people fear public speaking than death. So arts are are teaching kids valuable skills. Yeah. When did you start calling yourself a musician? We use the word musician pretty liberally to describe Bo, the robot soldiers keep calling him that musician 
when did you actually start describing yourself that way? Probably really annoyingly, like right away. Like I remember in high school recording five shitty tracks on my home computer and being like, look, I made a demo and it was like the most god-awful shit that I would never share with anybody. So I was probably like Bo back then. But it's a great question. And let me say that maybe my favorite part in this whole episode is when the two Horde troopers are harassing Bo over his loot. And then one of them's like, well, what are you going to do? Start a revolution? Hey. Which is so good. I loved that part. And I also loved that Catra was like, for heaven's sake, just give it back to him. <laughs> this yeah. is a stupid thing to pursue, you guys. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know. So I think it would be cool real quick to touch on the fact that, you know, as we talked about, Bo is really kind of a jerk. And it's interesting that in a show with essentially a token male, that is the route that the character goes. Uh, Maybe intentionally, maybe not. That doesn't seem totally unrealistic, though. It's almost as though the show is saying when confronted with an army of capable, strong, powerful and and attractive women the one man feels like he can't quite get there. And still insists on being the authority whenever he can. I do appreciate, though, that the token male, uh, A, has a lot of sort of stereotypically feminine imagery. His magic tricks, even in this episode, were sort of a flourish of hearts. But uh, also, I think especially in this era... Because I remember it being very gendered when I was young. Music and magic and theater in general was also quite feminine. It's nice to me that they made our uh, single guy into an artist or a musician. And also single. Like they don't – there's a couple episodes I think where they play that maybe he's into Glimmer or Adora or She-Ra. But generally there's not a lot of like inter-rebellion romance, which is nice. Yeah, we've seen several episodes in which he's sort of made fun of, you know, who do you like better, Adora or She-Ra? But he doesn't uh he doesn't ever really chase that down. And that's good. I'd like to think it comes from a place of respect. I agree. So, okay, let's let's look forward to the future. Uh let's just start with Bo. What do you think Bo's going to be like in the new show cuz he must be in it? Do you think so? I would guess, almost definitely. I guess there has to be a male character. Um, right. And it's, you know, I it's probably not going to be He-Man. And I guess it wouldn't be Seahawk if, if our contenders were a Seahawk or Bo. So I guess it would be Bo, yeah. I I hope they keep him an artist, first and foremost. I think showing uh, young viewers, especially young male viewers, that, you know, they can pursue any hobby they want or any definition of masculinity they want is going to be very important, especially next to a show that I think will have many opportunities to show us all different types of women. There's, you know, usually a token female who unfortunately has to represent the entirety of the, the gender and so it's interesting to talk about that from the the flipped perspective. Like if this one guy has to represent all dudes, hopefully he shows us a world of, of openness. I totally agree with that. I'd really love to ask Tim what like he pulled out of Bo to distill and give to the new writing staff. But yes, I completely agree with you. I wouldn't be surprised if Seahawk also showed up as like an on-again, off-again love interest. But... I bet Bo will be there a lot, and I feel like there's a lot of richness in this, like, almost resentment that he has, coupled with the fact that he actually is trying to do good. I feel like there's that's a corollary to a lot of, like, real men who have good intentions but don't really understand, like, what feminism is or how to be a good ally. Yeah, I unfortunately deal with that a lot in my daily life, the um, self-proclaimed feminist who wins your trust by saying the right things up front, but then in reality still has a lot of the same old flaws. And it almost makes you feel 
betrayed. It almost makes you feel uh, duped. And so it's okay if Bo is that, as long as we also get to see Bo learn and grow. Right. Yeah. I don't, I'm not saying he's like red pill. I just, you know, he <laughs> There has, better not be a red pill character. Have it. No. He just has room to grow. Exactly. As we all do. I would be curious, this is sort of tied into Bo, but it's more just the theme of this episode. Do you think there's going to be a musical component to this show? Yeah, that was going to be my next question, too. Cool. Well, I, I hope so. I feel like it's it's very on trend. You have, let's see, Steven Universe, Adventure Time, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, and even going back a little further than that to like a SpongeBob SquarePants this generation of kids has been raised in a you know highly musical cartoon world. It would be very cool if there was a song or two on the new Shira. Yeah, that feels likely like musicals are in. It's cool to like musicals now. Probably lends itself well to a show that is this fanciful. I made myself kind of for old time's sake listen to the end theme of Shira this time because I knew we were going to talk about music. And I just, I, I don't usually wait till the lyrics kick in anymore, but I'm still really into that sting at the end. You should watch the um, Secret of the Sword movie, which is the first five episodes cut together as a feature, um, because there's a full-length version of that song. Actually, just Google the music video. It's, um, it's something. It is something, it's I'm something. sure. Uh, so, and then the last point is, what will the music be like in the new show? And I know that this, like, the odds of this happening are infinitesimally small, but I would probably literally cry if they had the old music in the new show. It is that important to me. Like, I actually bought the CD soundtrack of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Aww. That it just came out of, like, archival research, like, a couple years ago. It's so, like, yeah, I love it. I think it would be, for many reasons, including legal ones, pretty surprising mm -hmm. to hear the exact same melodies, but I would not be shocked if some of the traditions stayed. Like, it's it's corny, but the repetition of She-Ra's name, or in He-Man's case, He-Man's name, during the transformations, just that bit is iconic. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see a new transformation theme that still sort of cries Shira majestically during the tune. Yeah, I think if anything, like my expectations are very measured, but I think about like there was a G.I. Joe revival maybe 15 years ago and also the community episode G.I. Jeff where all the music was like themed like the original without being the original except they paid to get just the theme song. So like you had that one piece that was still the same like it was a cover but it was you know the same melody and man if any creators listening and you haven't figured this out yet i will like put it on gofundme i'll give you hundreds of dollars to help buy the rights just to the shira theme oh i thought you were going to say you would make music for them you would compose it no 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 i can't write music i only do covers i just endorse them buying this the theme song officially. If you want to get the rest, that's fine. Probably not practical, but maybe do the theme song just for me. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but then I realized you could just edit me out if you're not feeling this. Uh huh. But our season finale uh, is once again going to be some sort of live event. We'll share the details of that later. But what if you did a musical performance at it? I could. Uh, there's an episode of Your Stories where uh, I got the Nerdalogs members to read a He-Man, She-Ra fan fiction I wrote when I was 14. And to cap it off, myself and the aforementioned Dwight and my dear friend Claire, who did the art for this podcast, we sang the I Have the Power and theme. So that's out there. Um, Claire is now in New York and Dwight hated every second of doing that. So I doubt that would happen again, but maybe something similar. Well, he only does covers. So if anyone is listening and wants to suggest a cover to force Eric to do, I'm just going to say he'll, he's up for it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> 
I'd like to show you all the things that I find on the internet But I don't know you well enough to open that part of my life What if you judge me and you leave me just because sometimes I look at things I never show my mom In the dark corners of the internet where everything's fair game and nothing's safe for work So before we go, uh, the moral of this episode really came out of left field for me. And it was, uh, hey, kids, check out science. (laughs) Which is worth noting, Lauren, you're now producing a podcast for the Illinois Science Council. Yeah, I just pulled up the website because I realized we try to do calls to action at the end of these episodes. And if this episode is literally going to air tomorrow... Uh, I am an associate board member for the Illinois Science Council. Uh, Not only am I now hosting their podcast, and Eric needs to give himself a pat on the back because he's our engineer. He is helping and a part of this, too. But uh, the Chicago Science Fest is next week. Uh, There's events going on through the entire week, including uh, the science of beer, the science of bread, there's a virtual reality sort of dome cast collaboration with the planetarium. Uh, Saturday, May 12th, though, is the big day-long expo at the Merchandise Mart, which is just tons of lectures all day from climate change to neuroscience. There's going to be a car show outside of some green vehicles. Uh, I'll be volunteering at the Project L art science event in Pilsen on Friday. Guys, I could talk about this forever, but please go to IllinoisScience.org and check it out because you can be like Looky. You can actually listen to him this episode and check out science. Science teaches us how things work. You'll find lots of wonderful books about science at your library. Bye now. Eric, given that we established at the beginning of this episode that our listeners of this show probably haven't heard your music before. Mm-hmm. Where the ding-dang heck can they go do that? Uh, I mean, you guys could... I still host the Nerd Alex Presents Your Stories, and I'm still part of the house band. Uh, I joke that I actually have the um, podcast cover band market cornered because I'm also part of the house band for Mortified, which has two shows at Lincoln Hall this month in Chicago on, I think, May 19th and 20th. Other than that, geez, I don't know. I'm with the Nerdalogs. Sometimes you can catch me at a Cards Against Humanity show. And, uh, I mean, if you're really lucky, maybe one day I'll bring back my solo Bruce Springsteen tribute. Oh. Uh-oh. If only we were so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll tack the I have the power onto the end of this episode. Okay. I'll keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> so we have one thing left to do here. And I have to ask, has anyone seen the Secret of the Sword movie? No one has. Oh, well then, uh, this will oh, play... this is the right crowd. This will play better on the podcast. So this is a song... <laughs> this is a song from the movie that introduced She-Ra to the world. It uh, is sung by the daughter of the show's producer to save money. <laughs> it is called I Have the Power. It is a minute and a half long, and it is sung ostensibly by He-Man and She-Ra. <laughs> One, two, three, four.
We'll do this one again in four years, too. <laughs> Good night, everybody.